Okay, good evening and welcome. Thank you all so much for coming out on this wet, blustery night. Uh, we try to schedule our public lectures on nights when it doesn't rain, but, uh, but we didn't quite work it out this time. Uh, welcome to this public lecture. My name is Sam Wong, and I'm chair of the Committee on Public Lectures, and it's my honor to, uh, to welcome you all here. Um, it's, uh, I'm really pleased that we have uh, Professor Antonio Damasio coming to visit. Uh, it's uh, a lecture that's close to my heart, my heart being neuroscience. And of course, with the growth in neuroscience at Princeton University, it's particularly fitting to have such an eminent neuroscientist here visiting us. Professor Damasio's lecture tonight is part of the Lewis Clark Vanuxum Lecture Series. The series is made possible by a bequest from Lewis Clark Vanuxum of the class of 1879. Vanuxum pursued a career in insurance, eventually specializing in insurance law. The goal of the Vanuxum Lectures is to bring to Princeton a series of public lectures on subjects of scientific interest as well as other subjects. To give you an idea, previous lectures have included the astronomer Edwin Hubble on the exploration of space and the astrophysicist Carl Sagan on extraterrestrial life. The writers Thomas Mann and Ralph Ellison and the educator and scientist James Conant on the mobilization of American scientists for the war. Tonight, Professor Damasio will be introduced by our own Danny Kahneman, who is the Eugene Higgins Professor of Psychology at Princeton University and Pro Pro Professor of Public Affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School. And now I give you Professor Kahneman. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure to introduce Antonio Damasio, who is David Dornsife Chair of Neuroscience in the College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences, University of Southern California. There is a lot to say uh, about Antonio Damasio. I'll just tell you that he's also the director of Brain and Creativity Institute, University of Southern California, and that since 1989, he's been adjunct professor at the Salk Institute, and that since 1992, he has been cited every year as one of the top doctors of America. He spent 30 years at the University of Iowa, which he turns into a veritable mecca for neuroscience. He had, before that, been trained in medicine and neurology in Lisbon. He's a member in many societies, uh, American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Institute of Medicine of NAS, he has had so many awards that I'm not going to list them all. Uh, among the more recent are the Prince of Asturias Award for Scientific and Technical Research, which he got last year, the Presidential Medal of the American Psychoanalytic Association, which he got this year, the Signoret Prize in Cognitive Neuroscience, which he got in 2004 and shared with his wife, Ana Damasio, uh, and many, many more. He has been honored, I was particularly impressed actually when I went over this, by the number of different countries in which he's been honored, including Belgium, Holland, Spain, China, and Finland. His impact on neuroscience and on psychology and on decision science, and I think on the public mind, has really been considerable. Uh, his first, uh, actually not sure that it's his first book, but the first book that penetrated you know, the public consciousness in a very big way with Descartes' Error, which was published in 1994 and has been translated into 30 languages. Uh, his next book was The Feeling of What Happens, Body and Emotion in the Making of Consciousness. His most recent book, which has been translated into, I think, only 18 languages so far, but it's uh, more are coming. 
His most recent book is Looking for Spinoza, Joy, Sorrow, and the Feeling Brain. One very important characteristic of Antonio Damasio's work is that he breaks down our routine categories. We tend to separate reason from emotion. Well, he's shown that that line is quite fuzzy and difficult. You can compute, but actually, in order to be rational, your emotions have to be functioning properly. We tend to separate mind and body. That's an enduring intuition which arises from the fact that we see physical objects and we have the experience of our own mind and of the causality of our own intentions. Well, it turns out that once you study Antonio Damasio's work, you think about mind and body differently from the way you did. So, it is my pleasure and my honor to introduce Antonio Damasio, who speak to us, as we were told, about the neurobiology of emotion, taking stock. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Sam, for inviting me. Thank you, Danny, very much for your kind introduction. Let me just say that uh, Danny Kahneman referred to uh, Descartes' era, which was not really my first book, but it's the first one that counts for me because it was more or less the kind of book that I wanted to do at that time. But in that book, uh, in a number of pages, I quoted his work because his work already was uh, uh, extremely intriguing, and I had at the time the intuition that it had quite a lot to do with what I was saying, and of course in uh, subsequent years that became quite obvious, that some of the uh, irregularities uh, in economic decision-making that he, and in decision in general, that he was pointing out uh, could in fact maybe accounted for by changes in something not generally thought about in connection to reason, which happens to be emotion. So thank you for being here. This almost looks like the beginning of Macbeth with a, a storm and rain, and uh, but it's it's great to be here. I've talked in this hall before, and I'm very pleased to be back. So, as you know, my main research interest is on this complex of biological phenomena that go under the umbrella term of emotion. And, of course, under that umbrella, there are many things to consider, the mechanisms of punishment and reward, uh, drives and motivations, and the phenomena that follows the deployment of emotion, which is feelings. Um, now, there are many good reasons why, even if you are not neuroscientists or neurologists, you want to have an interest in emotion. First of all, you are daily users, but beyond that, uh, there's this very central fact, is that emotion, whichever way you look at it, is involved quite critically in what one best calls, medically speaking, homeostasis the business of running the economy of our own organism, the business of running our life in all of its aspects, from metabolism to the immune system uh, to the way we defend ourselves against all kinds of uh, dangers and threats uh, in the outside world, whether they be a pathogen or a bus that is about to hit you. Um, as it turns out, emotion is also essential for the construction of the self, the construction of 
a set of processes uh, on the basis of which we end up having such things as the sense of identity and the sense of personhood. And uh, quite frankly, it's not possible to have one very important aspect of our mind and behavior, which is known as consciousness, without having that sense of self, which the more one investigates it, the more one realizes requires this, this set of phenomena of emotion and feeling in order to emerge. Um, emotion is equally critical, uh, and the emotion complex, I better say, because I'm including everything that is related to emotion now in this statement. Emotion is equally critical in learning and memory. We learn things better or worse depending on our emotional states. Uh, we sometimes learn things that we suppress because of our emotional states. And it so happens that emotion is critical in the construction of our social space. Um, most of the things that we very often hold as being the sole product of our acculturation, the product of uh, having good parents, schools, and peers, uh, and a lot of learning, uh, turns out to be, in fact, grounded, not totally made by, but grounded on processes of emotion, and I will like to say a few words about that. And emotion turns out to be essential in processes of decision. So the more one studies processes of decision, be them the decisions that we make in terms of moral judgments or the decisions we make in, a financial, uh, in relation to a financial problem uh, or the political decisions we make have an enormous component that comes from emotion. This is not to say that reason doesn't play a role. Of course it does. But it's just to serve notice that reason alone tends not to be the uh, whole story, that there is one part that comes from emotions for better and for worse. Um, and one last note is that probably emotion and these ingredients of emotion that I mentioned played a critical role in evolution. Uh, when you look at emotion from the perspective of a, a, a set of operations that allow organisms to carry out and achieve, to carry out certain actions and achieve certain goals, you realize that this would have been a wonderful way of setting parameters for gene networks which are otherwise pretty blind in terms of the eventual productions that they're going to create in terms of organisms to permit the construction of more and more complex brains, for example, and allow themselves in the process to be passed on more successfully to um, advancing generations. Now, none of these comments that I just made tend to be very apparent um, if you're actually not studying this problem. And they tend to be least apparent to people like all of us that use minds all the time. And the reason for this is very simple, is that we tend, we have a mind that is extremely complex, behaviors that are very complex, um, highly evolved, uh, and we, we have, of course, brains that are extremely complex. And when we start observing in sort of a natural way how our mind works uh, and how br brain might conceivably support those mental processes, 
we go into a process of obfuscation of the less complex levels. Um, it's very obvious, for example, that the fact that we are great users of language hides the concepts that sit below the level of language. We're constantly not realizing that underneath every word or sentence that we use, there is, in fact, a set of concepts, or sometimes one concept, that we are translating in language form. But the language dominates the, the picture, and you don't realize that there is this process going on. Um, the, the processes of self-consciousness hide the fact that none of this is a monolith and that, in fact, there are lower levels of consciousness that are extremely important, but they're hidden, obfuscated by self-consciousness. We very often don't realize that there are non-conscious deliberations going on, uh, and we tend to assume quite incorrectly that everything that we choose to do is because we really wanted to do it and that nobody uh, interfered with our decision. This is certainly not the case, and I'm not talking about the non-conscious of Freud, uh, although there is a non-conscious in the sense of Freud in all likelihood, although not quite the way he described it in my view. I'm talking about the fact that we know that there is an enormous amount of processing and there is an enormous amount of decision-making or at least a biasing of our decision-making that is made at non-conscious level and the evidence is coming from every possible direction. Cognitive psychology reveals it at any moment. Um, we also hide a level of what I like to call emotions under our sense of what feelings are. That's another level of obfuscation. And we don't realize that when we have emotions, uh, whether we're talking about emotions such as compassion or admiration or fear or anger or happiness, we don't realize that we are engaging very often, in fact, we're engaging all the time, mechanisms of reward and punishment, drives and motivations, and in fact, a whole machinery which maintains our homeostasis. Sorry for the big word, but that's a very convenient word, and it simply describes this way in which we run our, the economy of our organism. An economy actually applies well to this because there are costs, there are investments uh, that go on in this economy of our organism. So, uh, this is by way of preamble, and let me start now, really, by saying that uh, a decade ago, I would have uh, started the lecture by saying, emotion has been gone, but it's coming back. And uh, you would, of course, have asked me 10 years ago, what is it coming back from? And what it is coming back is from a long period of neglect. I'm not going to tell you the story of every reason why there was a neglect, but I would just like to point you to one very interesting period, uh, literally 100 years before, 10 years ago, uh, and that would have been the period at which um, the work of Darwin uh, had begun to penetrate uh, at least the intellectual mind of the time, certainly the mind of people interested in physiology or psychology. Um, likewise, the work of William James had entered that consciousness and was work that was in great part uh, aimed at the phenomena uh, of emotion and also the work of Freud. So you can really 
ask yourself how interesting that if you go back a little more than 100 years ago, emotions seem poised to be on top of the agenda of what would be then called neuroscience and psychology all rolled into one, and surely enough, all those problems would have been approached rapidly and decisively, and we would have by now known everything there was to be known about emotion. None of it happened, and in fact, by the first quarter of the 20th century, emotion had been effectively abandoned by neuroscience, not that it ever disappeared from uh, spotty appearances in uh, psychology or physiology, psychiatry, for example, but it effectively disappeared. And I remember that when I first told some colleagues of mine that I was going to start working very seriously on emotion, They said, you're crazy. There's absolutely nothing to be done there. It's all been done. And by the way, it was all all that stuff about emotion and mind and brain that James talked about was proven to be wrong. So don't even go that way. Um, Well, uh, James again, and James very importantly, because maybe there was something in the James presentation of emotion that probably played a key role in the neglect of the emotions, and I'm going to start my brief review exactly on William James, and uh, I'm going to, if I can get, uh, things are going a little bit too fast. Uh, So I'm going to start by asking this question, what is an emotion, and try to answer by giving the William James answer. And the William James answer is right there, Uh, our natural way of thinking about these emotions is that the mental perception of some fact excites the mental affection called the emotion and that this latter state of mind gives rise to the bodily expression. My thesis, that's James, of course, on the contrary, is that the bodily changes follow directly the perception of the exciting fact and that our feeling of the same changes as they occur is the emotion. Now, this was written by William James in a famous paper in 1884, and by the way, the emphases are his. You have the capitals on perception and the capital on is, and uh, uh, therein lies the problem. I think that what this definition uh, and this presentation of emotion did was a series of very interesting things, but one very problematic one. Number one, it inverted the traditional sequence of events in the emotion processing. So there was the stimulus that caused the emotion, changes in the body, then the take on those changes. And that's very intriguing, it's completely new. Second, interposed the body between the causative stimulus and the experience of emotion. So no longer was this a matter of going from one uh, thought to another, as it were. There was this interposition of the body, which is a very original uh, proposal. Uh, Curiously, it left out stimulus appraisal, uh, which is a problem because uh, we know Uh, now quite clearly that not all stimuli, even in the same person, uh, and sometimes even in the same circumstances, will cause exactly the same degree of emotion, which really means that there is something that goes on that filters the stimulus and that allows it to do or not do its job in terms of causing the emotion. And it also confined 
the cognitive aspects of emotion to the perception of both the stimulus and of the body activity that follow the stimulus. And this is a problem because there is far more to the cognition that is connected to emotion than just those two things. Finally, and this is the big problem, it conflated emotion and feeling. And this is a problem because without this principal distinction, first of all, you would have a lot of problems, and we did have a lot of problems, in having a proper strategy of researching emotion. Uh, because, uh, for example, if people think that emotion is a feeling, they will not do studies that involve animals because how would you know if animals have feelings or not? Uh, we can presume they do, but can we have scientific proof that they do? We can't. So that was a problem. Um, but uh, perhaps even more, uh, even more importantly, uh, it created all sorts of problems for James himself and a number of objections that were made to with the William James work were made on the basis of that conflation and what in essence is a semantic confusion that I will come back to once I give you the proper background. So um, let me tell you about examples of emotion. I don't think I need to spend much time with it. Uh, primary emotions like fear, anger, happiness, sadness, or disgust. Social emotions such as compassion, shame, contempt, pride, and awe, which we can also call admiration, an emotion that Jonathan Haidt, who is here at the Institute, uh, uh, has studied uh, quite brilliantly. Uh, and something that I uh, like to call background emotions, uh, which include uh, such emo emotions as enthusiasm and discouragement. Don't worry about the classification. You can have as many classifications as you wish. I just want you to think a little bit about these different kinds of emotion, which are certainly um, examples of emotion that everyone could agree are emotions, or everyone tends to agree. Uh, and uh, tell you now, keeping that in mind, some definitions of emotion that I hope we can agree on as well. And my most general definition of emotion, applying for human emotion, would be that human emotions are largely unlearned programs of automatic actions and cognitive strategies aimed at the management of life. And of course, this is quite different from what James presented, in spite of the fact that I'm a great admirer of James and is my hero in this field, because First of all, it uh, gives an emphasis to the fact that these are action programs. We're not talking yet about anything felt, anything perceived in our minds about the emotional process. We're talking about something that is a set of actions that is distinguishable from a reflex. It's not like tapping a, uh, a, a knee and getting a knee jerk. It's something far more complicated, but it is a concerted set of actions. They're all articulated and they're all different. For example, what happens when you are in a state of fear uh, in the emotion fear is that certain things change in your hormonal system, uh, certain things change in terms of your blood pressure and heart rate and respiration. Things change in the way your mu the muscles in your face adopt a certain configuration and even the muscles in your body adopt a certain posture. All of that is part of a package and it is highly stereotyped, not only for each individual but for 
individuals of larger groups. In fact, it's highly stereotyped across cultures. Not that there are not differences from time to time. It's like, like having a syndrome like the flu. Not everybody has the same flu, and there are certain symptomatic differences, but there are enormous similarities in that package. So this is not a reflex. It's more complex than that. But in humans, in addition to the fact that you have those sets of actions, at the same time that you have those sets of actions, you also have certain kinds of thought process. Certain things change in your cognitive resources, in the way your learning or your working memory and attention operate. Um, and certain kinds of script are evoked automatically. So, for example, if you're very sad, uh, it's very unlikely that you're going to think spontaneously about having dinner in a three-star Michelin restaurant. Uh, and it's also very unlikely, if you are extremely happy, that your natural recall of scripts is going to make you think of funerals. That is not an accident. That is a fact that has to do with the fact that there are certain kinds of ideational process that occur in relation to certain emotions and not in relation to others. Now, I start by saying that these are human emotions, and you say, well, but what about animals? Don't they have emotions? So let's have another uh, definition of emotion that is more general and that uh, allows you to go into the animal world without having any problem, and that is that emotions are unlearned programs of automatic actions aimed at the management of life. So I've preserved the integrity uh, of, the, of the core. In other words, the programs are unlearned. You can modify them by learning, but basically they are unlearned. They are automated. They, aimed, they aim at regulating life, um, and they still have this collection of actions. And now I would uh, actually add that some of those actions, even at the simplest level, uh, for example, an orienting behavior that can be part of an emotional reaction, or an action tendency. Uh, for example, if you are in the emotion of compassion, if, if something evokes compassion in you, there are certain action tendencies that you have in relation to the object for which you are having compassion for, and those are very specific, and they're not the ones that you're going to have if you're having in a state of anger where the action tendencies are probably going to be to reject the person you're talking to or throw away the object that has been the cause of your anger. So all of these actions that are there to start with, even before there was any organism that could have a mind that could feel an emotion, those actions, once you begin having minds in evolution, can be the source of the cognitive aspect of emotions. And of course, in humans, we have the whole thing. Um, now, to try to get to the, the heart of emotion a little bit more, emotional programs are built from simpler programs. This thing did not start by having emotions like anger and fear or sadness. It started by having drives and motivations and reward and punishment processes that are integral components to these programs. And incidentally, inside those programs, in order to have anything that will be eventually 
perceived and felt as a punishment or a reward, you need to have internal scaling mechanisms that measure the need. Uh, and you need to have prediction devices that allow you to make predictions about the likely delivery of a reward. But that's part of this whole machinery. And finally, emotions and their components execute homeostatic goals of varied specificity. That is to say, they are, in one way or another, in charge of doing something good for the preservation of our organism. Whether you're thinking about fear or uh, thinking about sadness or about happiness, all of these emotions are related in some way to uh, the good, quote-unquote, of the subject that is undergoing the emotion directly or the good of some other creature that is very close to that subject and that is part of the social setting in which that subject is. So there is a, an element of uh, attempt to regulate uh, what is going on in the life of an organism alone and in a social setting even before there's any possibility of those organisms having a mind of their own and thinking on their own whether they can or not do something good for themselves. Nature is doing something good for themselves naturally, the same way that underneath all of this, it is doing something good by maintaining blood pressure and maintaining pH in the bloodstream and maintaining the right setting of hormones and modulators so that you can have a proper metabolism and you have delivery of energy to uh, energy sources to the cells that you must keep alive. So. How is this program triggered? Uh, this program is triggered as a package and is triggered by something that I like to call emotionally competent stimuli. And for those of you who are interested in, uh, who are uh, biologists of some sort or in medicine or are interested in what goes on in human organisms, uh, you will find a resonance with the notion of immune competence. Uh, and it's there on purpose because there's a lot of similarity. You have stimuli that can cause emotions and stimuli that can't. The same way that there are certain agents in the outside world that can cause an infection and others that cannot. And so the notion of emotional competence, I think, is a useful, expedient one. And emotionally competent stimuli are objects uh, or situations, and they may be present or they may be in mind. When you recall uh, a story, uh, when you are daydreaming, you can have an emotion uh, and a corresponding feeling that comes out of an idea that has been recalled and has engaged the emotion as an emotionally competent stimuli. In fact, you can even have an emotion when you are dreaming, and uh, if you are in REM sleep, you will have uh, ideas. You have images that will, in fact, trigger emotions. Now, some of these emotionally competent stimuli are set by evolution. For example, there are certain uh, events, certain kinds of visual situation, or certain kinds of, um, uh, or, or, or certain kinds of uh, uh, sounds. For example, uh, high-pitched sounds uh, that can cause certain kinds of emotion, and it's quite apparent that they have been set long ago in evolution that they play, for example, the role of alarm calls. 
and engage certain responses that are protective uh, for an organism. But then there are many other uh, emotionally competent stimuli that are learned, and they are learned together with other stimuli that are of the primary kind. So uh, you, we all have a certain component of react, emotional reactions that uh, we share, uh, and we have a certain component that comes out of the customized learning that each of us as an individual has had in his or her life. And uh, so uh, don't, don't let this make you think that there's something highly deterministic that decides that you're going to have emotions set by the genome, and that's the end of the story. In fact, you have what you have as emotions depending both on uh, aspects of your brain that are set by the genome and on many that are the result of your individualized learning. Now, how do, do we trigger these things? Do we know what are the trigger points in the brain? In fact, we do know now about a lot of them. And I'm just showing you on the screen um, a couple of those. Do you know if I have a pointer here? I don't think I do. But even without a pointer, uh, let me show you. You have here a reconstruction of a human brain. Uh, the human brain in the uh, right-hand side uh, has been cut in two sections. Thank you, Sam. The bottom? The front. Okay. So here we have this. Uh, the brain has been cut in this direction and in this direction. And here you're looking at an entirely normal brain. And you see that in this kind of cut, you get the amygdala, a, a pack of nuclei in the temporal lobe. And you're seeing it here in a different kind of cut, which is a cut done in this direction. And uh, this is a normal amygdala. It's gray matter, a set of nuclei that receives um, signals from the visual system and the auditory system, for example, and that can, in fact, trigger reactions for certain emotions, most commonly for the emotion of fear and, to a certain degree, the emotion of anger. Here, you're looking at the amygdala of a patient that had damage to the amygdala caused by a genetic disease that selectively deposits calcium in this region and destroys the region for all practical purposes. And what happens is that this patient, and any patient like this, is no longer capable of triggering fear. And that emotion is no longer in the repertoire. What is very interesting is that this person who cannot trigger the fear reaction will not have a feeling of fear either, but this person still knows what fear is. And so if I ask this person, what is fear? Give me an example of how you would feel fear. This person will say, well, if you would point a gun to my head, I would feel fear. As it happens, the person will not feel fear, but nonetheless, the concept of what fear is, is there. The use of the word is fine, except that no fear is felt in the flesh. There is no engagement of all that cortege of reactions that I talked about that characterize um, fear. And uh, we also know that another territory of the brain uh, called the ventromedial frontal cortex, 
which is a part of the frontal lobe that is literally along the midline and along the base of the brain. You see here an area of damage in this territory. You see it visualized here. This is all in the same patient. This is not post-mortem. These are all reconstructions in three dimensions done with magnetic resonance. Uh, you see it here from the base of the brain and here from the front of the brain. And um, for you to have a sense of where this is in the brain, I'm showing you now a composite uh, of an overlap of 18 patients who had damage in this territory, and the areas marked in red are the areas of maximal overlap. And what happens is that a patient with damage in this area, in addition to many interesting things that I will refer to briefly, will not be able to trigger emotions such as compassion, shame, embarrassment, um, a sense of elevation and admiration. However, this patient can perfectly well trigger sadness and happiness and fear and anger. And uh, likewise, the patient with damage to the amygdala was able to trigger reactions of sadness, reactions of happiness, or reactions of compassion. So what this is telling us in a very powerful way uh, is that, like with many other aspects of the human brain and mind and behavior, that do not come in, in stock from one brain region, we no longer live in phrenology, for example, memory, different kinds of memory and different parts of the memory process are handled by very different components of the brain. The same with language. Um, the same with aspects of visual perception. The same with emotion. So different emotions are handled by different triggering points. And uh, uh, it's from there that uh, the end process of appraisal, the filtering, will determine whether or not that emotion can be engaged. Um, in fact, the list of the triggering regions is now very long, and it includes uh, regions such as the anterior cingulate, the anterior insula, which is very important to trigger the emotion of disgust, uh, and all of these structures uh, in the in purple, have in part uh, triggering uh, um, properties, but also execution properties. So they not only trigger the emotion, but they actually are part of the mechanism that uh, will uh, deploy the emotion. Now, when you execute an emotion, uh, that execution comes out in at least three different parts of your organism. One is the internal milieu, by which I mean think about it as the chemical bath in which all our tissues and cells live. Uh, think about it in terms of the chemical bath that is flowing in the bloodstream with all these substances that, you, uh, that are the product of your digestion and also all the hormones, all the chemical molecules that do great part of the regulation of your entire organisms. That's the internal milieu. And when you have an emotion, for example, when you have fear, you actually release a tremendous amount of cortisol. Uh, and you have this cascade that I'm not going to go into that starts in the brain, goes into the hypothalamus, into the pituitary, and then releases these messengers that go all the way into many tissues, many parts 
of the organism to do their job. So this is very interesting because there's something neural in it. There's brain in that there's a thought, there's a process in the brain. That thought and that process is going to generate the release of the hormone, and that hormone is going to do a number of jobs in the, in the body. Okay, So that's one part. But there are other ways of acting, for example, uh, in terms of the viscera. So you can go directly to your heart and change the heart rate. Or you can go to the way you breathe and accelerate or de decelerate the uh, rhythm of your breathing. And you can change the skeletal muscle in your face or in your body. So the point to be made is that all of these aspects of your organism, let's be specific now, the body, are engaged by an emotional state. And it all changes, and it's not just one of them. And very often when people talk about emotion, they give short shrift to one or two of them. And they think that emotion is about visceral change or that emotion is about muscular change in the face or in the body. But in fact, it's all of it. And depending on the emotions, there can be more. There's a different kind of composition going on in terms of how the body uh, gets engaged. But then let's not forget that the central nervous system itself, the brain itself, also gets changed in terms of the ideas that accompany the unfolding of an emotion. So what I'm trying to get across is the idea that to have an emotion is a very big deal, uh, and it actually involves changes across many departments of the body proper as well as of the brain itself. This uh, is not quite the way James saw it, but we cannot blame him for thinking the way he did in 1884. Uh, what, what he did was actually quite brilliant given the circumstances. Okay, just uh, I'm not going to go into detail here, but just to tell you that out of these many different regions in the brain, you have this great collection of molecules, and some of them are very well known to you. Uh, many people have heard about the role of dopamine in these processes, or of serotonin, or of opioids, or of oxytocin, which happens to be very much in fashion because it's now perfectly clear that uh, oxytocin, which operates at many levels, for example, in processes such as lactation and parturition, and in a variety of sexual behaviors, also happens to induce calm and trust. Uh, and uh, that is very interesting, and, and that's why it's so much in fashion at the moment. Uh, and of course, cortisol releasing hormones. So just to have the idea that all of these chemical molecules are not, you know, sometimes people ask, well, so emotions are chemical things, uh, chemical events. Well, not quite. They're, they're chemical. Uh, chemically induced and neurally induced and all of the chemistry is there doing its actions because it's acting on certain points um, of the brain or of the, the body. And something that I would like to say very briefly is because it actually is a very important idea and it connects both with what I think this field is going to become in the next few years, uh, but also with something that happened in the past. And that's the idea that when you have emotional changes, 
you either have a decrease in the efficiency of the regulation of life, and interestingly, you will perceive that as pain and, or punishment, or you actually increase the efficiency and you probably experience that as pleasure and reward. So uh, the reason why this is interesting is that in order to have efficiency or inefficiency of the way your organism is functioning, induced by an emotion, is something that can happen in any organism, can happen in a snail, can happen in a fly, can happen in a, a, a honeybee, and it can happen in creatures like us. Um, and it then can, if there is brain enough to have that power, it can be perceived as punishment or reward. It can be perceived as pleasure or pain. But in of itself, it can be reduced down to a physiological process, and that I think is a very important idea because it gives you a handle on how you can uh, study this set of phenomena a little bit deeper. Um, the reason why I talked about a connection of this into the past is that one of my favorite philosophers, with Spinoza, talked about positive emotions, such as happiness, as in a very beautiful description, as a way of moving the body, by which he meant the organism, towards a state of greater perfection. And emotions that are negative, such as fear and anger, as a state of moving the body towards states of imperfection and impeded function. And I uh, hold the belief that what Spinoza meant 200 years before he should have thought about it, uh, and uh, almost 300 before we're thinking about it, was something along these lines. And because he was uh, extremely rich in his biological intuitions, even if you knew nothing about biology, uh, he was probably able to hone in on something that is very uh, real physiologically. Um, and, of course, all of these changes that I talked about in terms of attention, working memory, learning, and so on, they induce uh, um, uh, cognitive changes, and those cognitive changes are coming out of entirely different parts of the brain, um, and they are, in fact, coming out of structures in the dorsolateral frontal cortex, in the temporal, and in parietal cortices. And so it's very different from the changes that are related to the most basic aspects of emotion, which are much more connected with the internal, medial parts um, of the brain. So, in very quick summary, you have a process that is multi-step and that will go into uh, uh, processes of appraisal, of triggering, of execution, and of the constitution of an emotional state. And we have a pretty good idea of the different kinds of structures that it takes for the brain to generate this uh, complex reaction. Now, it's time to turn to feelings uh, and to ask what are feelings of emotion if I want to uh, defend the idea that they are actually different from the emotions themselves. And a rapid definition of emotion, of feeling, would run like this. Feelings are composite perceptions of, number one, a certain state of the body, 
which can either be an actual state or a simulated state. I will explain this in a minute. A certain state of cognitive, uh, altered cognitive resources and the deployment of certain scripts. And of course, all of these perceptions are temporally connected to the causative object, to the emotionally competent stimulus, which gives, of course, this perception its intentionality. So what I'm really saying is that feelings are, feelings of emotion are, perceptions of many of the things that are happening uh, concurrently when you are having an emotion. It's the perception of how your mind changes in terms of its resources, the perception of the scripts that are going on, but very centrally, the perception of how that body state changed under the effects um, of emotion. So the next question is, how do we feel an emotion? And this is an important and uh, fairly new uh, set of answers to this question because even as recently as 10 years ago, uh, people thought that maybe one or two regions or something very vague like the limbic system would be the part of the brain that would both do all the emotions for you and in addition feel the emotions. And now we know that this is not the case and that not only do you fragment the systems of the brain that cause different kinds of emotion, but we also end up perceiving emotions under this aspect of feeling in very different brain regions. And so the, the mechanisms to feel an emotion uh, in current thinking are really three. One is by, first of all, changing the state of the body and perceiving what's in the body. Uh, number two, by altering the transmission of body signals to the central nervous system. In other words, you don't actually need to go to the body and change the body in all of its aspects if you have the possibility of altering the transmission and actually changing the way you perceive the body, or even better, by creating directly a particular pattern of body maps in the central nervous system. In other words, you can simulate what would have gone on if you had gone to the body, changed it under the emotion, and transmitted the signals upward. So there are at least these three ways of conceiving the mechanisms for the feeling of an emotion. Um, and this is the what I called many years ago the body loop mechanism. This is the standard Jamesian way of looking at the problem. Go to the body, change it, feedback to somatosensing regions, and get in maps of the insular cortex, the cingulate, the hypothalamus, and the parabrachial nucleus, a multifarious representation of what is going on in the body. Now, uh, is this realistic? Absolutely. More realistic now than it was for William James, because we now know in great detail that there are all sorts of routes from the body into the brain, not only the, the ones that use chemical molecules, but this extremely variegated system called the interoceptive system that brings in great detail signals from all over the body into the central nervous system. And then, of course, there are also all sorts of other signals that coexist with them that are extraceptive signals that are related to touch, to smell, taste, vision, hearing, and so on that coexist. Now, the, the detail to which we know this is now extremely sophisticated. We know that there are several channels, 
And I'm showing this diagram for those who are interested to say that there are, in fact, dedicated lines of communication from the body to the brain. Uh, for example, lines that will bring information from the, uh, uh, from the lower part of the spinal cord or in the brain stem through the trigeminal nucleus uh, and from the vagus nerve, which comes from viscera, all the way into different nuclei of the thalamus and from there to the insular region and to uh, eventually the cingulate and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Now, just one note to say that the main cause of the attack on William James uh, uh, was made by uh, work by Sherrington and Cannon in 1927, and here's what they did, and that tells you how important it is to separate emotion from feeling. They severed the spinal cord and the vagus nerve of cats and of dogs. So what they did was go to this architecture and cut this and cut at this level so that the vagus nerve, which actually goes into the brainstem independently, doesn't go through the spinal cord, and the spinal cord would not feed information into the central nervous system. And then they did something very interesting. They had a cat which was essentially paralyzed from the head down and did not have vagus nerve. They showed a dog to the cat, and the cat was immensely angry with the dog, as one should expect, and they said, aha, how can Mr. James be right when we have just severed all the body input into the central nervous system, and it's obvious that the cat is having emotions? And uh, throwing caution to the winds, uh, Cannon even said, where emotions are so strong, can feelings be far behind? And the reason, the, the, the fact is that, yes, feelings can be far behind. And the point is that although they cut the vagus nerve, you had all the input from the trigeminal nerve that goes into the hypothalamus, into the um, thalamus, and gets into the brain. And everything that goes on in your face that is visceral or muscular, including facial expressions, can be fed entirely to the central nervous system. In other words, there was a very large component of body input that they did not cut. And besides, they confused the fact that the cat was having an emotion with the conclusion, which was totally unwarranted, that the cat had normal feelings because the cat had an emotion, and the likelihood is that, in fact, the cat had somewhat reduced feelings because part of the input had been severed. So uh, if uh, William James had made the distinction, probably this argument would not have been made, and it's solely on these papers that the uh, discredit of the William James hypothesis rests. Um, one uh, quick note on the fact that when you, when you have emotions, and they are strong emotions, you actually actively change not only the body, but you have changes in the parts of the brain that monitor the state of the body. How do we know this? This actually comes from an experiment that we conducted some years ago in which we 
uh, generate in totally normal people using uh, functional neuroimaging, in this case positron emission tomography, we generated uh, emotions. Uh, basically, it's what we call the actor studio paradigm. People were asked to generate emotions from memories they had about specific events in their life uh, which had been sad or caused fear or caused ang anger. Uh, there were four emotions involved. And so they reenacted those emotions. And what we were monitoring is uh, the results of those emotions in terms of the areas in the brain that we had hypothesized with registered changes because they are areas that are looking at the body continuously and therefore should have a change. And this is in fact what happened. For example, in the emotion of uh, sadness, you see these very pronounced changes in one structure, which is really the platform for all of this representation of emotions in the central nervous system, which is the insula. Uh, but a variety of other structures that are related to body monitoring were also active. And if you're looking at an emotion like happiness, again, the pattern is different, but there is an engagement of those areas, and the same happens with fear or with anger. And just to tell you how detailed this way of bringing back information from the body can be, it's quite clear that uh, there are even ways of labeling chemically the structures in the trigeminal nerve or in the spinal cord that bring sign signals about the interior of the organism. And we know that structures that are related to that interior of the organism are uh, very strongly uh, calbindin positive, which is a way of labeling uh, cells with a chemical marker, and that the same thing happens uh, to the insula. Now, for the uh, last way in which you can create a feeling, you can create a feeling literally by simulating it, by playing in a playground that largely is made up of this structure called the insula. So instead of uh, just asking the body to change, which of course consumes a considerable amount of energy and time, you can learn that a certain kind of emotion is commonly associated with a certain pattern of representation that comes from the body. And this is what I call the as-if body loop, which I think sort of gives you the idea of what I'm uh, aiming at. And so probably together, and we don't know this for certain, probably together with some signals from the body, this is a way of more rapidly placing the brain in a situation that is that of having received input from the body in order to have a certain perception of a body state that would correspond to a certain emotion. We have all sorts of evidence uh, for this. We know, for example, that damage to this territory of the right uh, um, hemisphere, which holds underneath uh, this structure of the insula, which in humans clearly is dominant for the processing of emotional body-related information, we know that damage to this area really precludes any kind of insight that is of the emotional variety. In fact, you preclude the experience of feelings 
and uh, you also have very complex social consequences from having uh, from having such a uh, such damage. Um, and we also know from a variety of experiments that uh, when you are in conditions in which you do not actually need to have, say, uh, uh, an emotion caused by pain and the suffering that is associated with pain, but we actually just perceiving someone else in a state of uh, comparable pain, we engage structures of the insula that are extremely similar, and there's no signal from the body, and you know that the other somatosensory cortices are not engaged, and yet the insula engaged, which really means that during that emotional condition, which is one of compassion for someone who is having pain, there is a very rapid way of redeploying a pattern that is characteristic in oneself of the pattern of suffering. So you end up having this compassion-empathy response not by going through the full suffering pattern, going through the pain, engaging the body necessarily, but by rapidly deploying a pattern that corresponds to that in one's own prior experience. And this is, for all intents and purposes, a simulation, but it's as good as any uh, way of getting feeling. Let me just make a little note for my friend William James, is that uh, some years ago, I discovered, thanks to a colleague who pointed it out to me, that William James has a footnote that I had never read that does not quite do an as-if body loop, and he obviously did not like it, but does something that is quite intriguing, which just shows how smart he was. And he says in that footnote one, uh, of course the physiological question arises, how are the changes felt? after they are produced by the sensory nerves of the organs bringing back to the brain a report of the modifications that have occurred, or before they are produced by our being conscious of the outgoing nerve currents starting on their way downward towards the parts that they are to excite. I believe all the evidence we have to be in favor of the former alternative. So he clearly, even in the footnote, committed himself to what is now the body loop mechanism, and that's what he believed in. But he opened this, which is really quite insightful, because it's actually a a mechanism that I cannot go into, that is a mechanism of efferent scopy. It's a mechanism of generating some pattern out of the outflow of an output uh, into another part of the brain. This is very intriguing, so this is not the as if body loop as I explained it. It would be yet another uh, mechanism to add to this way of producing feeling, but I think it's wonderful to see that uh, someone like James could actually think of this alternative, even if he did not favor it. So, the sequence of events of William James was very simple. Perception of stimulus obviously happening in something like the visual cortex. Uh, body changes, perception of body changes, also in the cerebral cortex, although, of course, he did not know about a somatic cortex per se. The sequence of changes today is far more complicated. We certainly want to reintroduce, uh, beyond the perception of the emotionally competent stimulus, an appraisal. Uh, We want to uh, have 
a distinction between the triggering of the action and the cognitive programs and then the execution. Uh, in terms of the execution, there can be actual body changes or clearly simulated body changes. Um, there are cognitive changes which uh, James uh, did not consider. And then finally, there's something where we return to James, which is in the perception of the action programs in the context of the emotionally competent stimulus. And uh, the, the good news is that in the past 10 years, we've gone from not having anything to say about the brain in these areas other than say, well, it's in the limbic system, to having a very detailed map of different regions that in concert can work to produce uh, some of this. Um, the way in which we're knowing about the tempos of this process is becoming more and more sophisticated. This is from a recent study using another imaging modality called magnetoencephalography and where uh, my student David Rudrow was able to look at what was happening uh, in the brain with very nice time courses coming all the way from 70 milliseconds to about 500 milliseconds and look at a hy hypothetical sequence of events in the brain. And uh, uh, basically it conforms to what one expects, except that there were a couple of interesting surprises. Much to our surprise, there is a very rapid jump from visual cortices to anterior temporal and frontal cortices, and only at a later time is there a literal filling in of the uh, inferior visual uh, information processing chain in the temporal lobe. Eventually, it all ends up producing the activations in the somatosensory cortices that go with uh, the body change perception. And there's also, but this is another story, something totally unexpected, uh, an area in the medial uh, posterior part of the parietal lobe which we know is related to processes of monitoring of consciousness, which is very rapidly engaged uh, in this process, and we had no hypothesis for that. It was a surprise, and we're uh, working on it. Now, let me just close with something about consequences of knowing a bit more about emotion, especially in areas that are of great interest to us. Let's talk about this social space that I alluded to uh, early on. For example, we know that emotion is absolutely critical in terms of our appreciation of approachability in relation to others or the way we trust others. It's not something that we do by reason alone, even if we're very smart. Or if we do it by reason alone, we probably are spending more energy than we needed to if we had an emotional system that would help us into that process. So we did an experiment uh, a few years ago uh, in patients with that kind of amygdala damage that I talked about, specifically in three patients. And let me tell you what we did. We did a study in which we uh, gave people 50 faces that had been judged by entirely normal individuals as of highly approachable people and of highly trustworthy people. The way we did this is by asking large sets of normal individuals 
tell me, rate this face in terms of whether you would want to approach these people in the street and talk to this person, or whether you would trust this person with your money. Would you trust this person with your purse? And people rated this, and we then separated these faces, which were all very banal. There were no mustaches, glasses, strange hairdos. And we separated these, these uh, faces into the 50 most uh, the 50 most positive faces and the 50 worst possible faces. And then we gave this to uh, a group of entirely normal individuals, three patients with bilateral damage to the amygdala, four patients with damage to the right amygdala only, three patients with damage to the left amygdala only, and brain-damaged controls that had damage in areas not related to emotion. And uh, it's very interesting because all of these patients look at the 50 most positive faces and they behave essentially in the same direction. Now, when you come to the 50 most negative faces, the normals, the right amygdala, the left amygdala, and the controls also do the predictable thing. But then look at what the amygdala patients do. The amygdala patients find the 50 most negative faces equally approachable. And when you go to the trustworthiness ratings, you have exactly the same effect. So something very interesting is happening is that when you lose a structure that normally can trigger reactions of fear, you end up being much more trusting of other people than if you had this reaction available to you. And this correlates actually with a central symptom that these patients have in real life. You know, they're very smart people. They can tell you beautiful stories. They actually take care of children. They are quite trustworthy, actually, themselves. But what they do is behave in what I call the Pollyanna mode. They, they approach everyone. They, they come much closer into the social space than normals do. And they trust you in a very, very open way. And this is, of course, very dangerous because these people are taken advantage of and they need to be protected. So uh, there's something that I think emotion is good for. Uh, then just a very brief note. This is from a very recent study, which is uh, to be published, uh, and that is by a student of ours, uh, Mike Koenig. It's a study done in collaboration with Mark Hauser. And what we did is use a paradigm of moral dilemmas that was actually used in a beautiful study done here at Princeton by Josh Green, and in which he used uh, moral dilemmas, moral dilemmas of the kind that only philosophers can think of and that uh, other folks can't. Uh, and some of them are quite extreme, of the kind of, for example, uh, if you are in a basement and if you have... Uh, if, if you need everybody that is hiding in that basement from, say, German uh, paratroopers, uh, if you need everybody to be silent and your child suddenly starts crying, you have two options, either smother the child and kill it or let the child, and, and of course save everyone in the basement, or let the child cry, in which case everybody will die. And the interesting thing is that when you get to dilemmas of this sort and you give them to normal people, normal people are very strong at rejecting them. 
And uh, in, in addition to the artificiality of the situation, they reasoned that no, they would not do that. Yes, they would save more people, but they're not ready to kill the child. And this is the extreme personal dilemma uh, in this set. And what we found that is very interesting is that in six patients with that kind of damage in the dorsolateral frontal lobe, which, by the way, is the one that causes the loss in social emotions, such as compassion, shame, embarrassment, admiration. When they have that damage, in these dilemmas, these patients clearly diverge from the normal population or from brain-damaged subjects. And what they do is endorse the extreme, highly utilitarian scenario. And yes, indeed, they would smother the child because that would be good for the group. And they adopt a perspective of the group rather than adopting their own perspective. So this is interesting, and it's food for thought. And uh, I just told you the story. And I would close with a couple of things that, a couple of very interesting results that are relevant to a, a new field of decision uh, neuroscience that has to do with decisions uh, that are very often in, 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 uh, of economic problems. And one is a, a study, and then it, it connects very well with the things that I've just mentioned to you. One is a study actually done here also at Princeton by Sam McClure and uh, Jonathan Cohen uh, and uh, an economist, George Lowenstein. And basically, they dealt with a problem of time discounting. And the upshot of this study was to demonstrate that when you're going to make decisions that lead to an immediate reward, you activate a very different system in the brain from the system that will be activated if the decisions require you to wait for the reward, for example, a monetary reward for a, a certain period of time. And the interesting thing is that when the decisions are related to the immediate reward, the medial emotionally related part of the prefrontal cortex is more active. And when the decisions are related to the uh, uh, temporal uh, difference, uh, dorsolateral frontal lobe cortices are active, and a result that is very much along the same uh, lines that comes from Nathaniel Daw and Ray Dolan and Peter Diane in London, quite recent, is uh, that when you engage in uh, problem solving in a way that involves monetary rewards, when you engage in problems that require uh, a, a sort of immediate reward and exploitation of possible reward immediately, again, you engage structures in this dorsal, uh, in this uh, medial and uh, ventromedial prefrontal cortex, the one that many years ago we thought was clearly related to abnormalities of decision making. Uh, whereas if you're using a more exploratory strategy and you defer the reward in order to probe other possibilities and eventually get further reward, you end up activating structures that in the case of the DAW study are actually more in the polar aspect of the frontal lobe. Uh, this makes uh, perfect sense to us and it's simply indicating uh, once again that in these kinds of problems, you need to deal not just 
with reason alone, but with reason and uh, emotional processes that are tempering reason uh, in great part by um, uh, spontaneous and natural uh, effects of reward, but perhaps more importantly, by the kind of learning that we have had in our past experience in relation to rewards and punishments. So there is once again a customization of this process of emotion and of its relation to um, to uh, uh, rewards and punishments and certain objects that uh, situations that prompted our our decisions. So I think that uh, uh, stay tuned for more news on the world of emotion and feeling, but um, be prepared for the fact that um, many of the aspects of our social life that we uh, study, for example, in social, sti- in social sciences, in economics, uh, in uh, moral philosophy, are in fact open to some illumination from these, uh, from these studies in the future. Uh, it's not that they're going to solve the problems, and this is going to be a partnership in solving these problems, of course, but, um, but I think they offer the possibility of uh, uh, getting us to understand a little bit more about human nature uh, really is. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, yes, have you uh, done any work with post-traumatic stress patients, uh, war, shell shock, sort of thing, where they had an extreme uh, stress event and have continued with that problem? What effect does that have on these brain structures? Right, so the, the question is about post-traumatic syndrome. It's very interesting. We, we were just talking about that at dinner. And no, I have not done any work in that area, but it's a very rich area to investigate. Uh, clearly, the emotional effects are very profound, um, and they can, there are a variety of techniques that will probably... Well, first of all, you need to understand the condition better, uh, but there are a variety of techniques that um, I'm pretty certain will permit considerable improvement. And it's a problem that is now becoming more dramatic because there's so many, especially now, so many uh, young persons that come back from a war uh, at age 20, 22, 23 with horrible wounds to their head, all the way from contusions and penetrating wounds to just um, uh, concussions, and they have these uh, syndromes. And of course, they, uh, there's a, a larger and larger number of survivors because in spite of all the bad armor that we give to our soldiers, they do survive death, uh, but they do not survive these injuries. So it's a very important problem to deal with. But we're only at the beginning of that. Why does, um, excuse me, exercise-induced stress blunt 
the visceral response to anxiety-induced stress seems to have a conditioning effect. Tell, tell me again, what does it do? Exercise-induced stress, for instance, if you go out and ride your bicycle for 20 miles and then you sit through a very stressful meeting, you don't have that visceral response to stress, sweaty palms, racing heart, uh, all the oh. other undesirable effects. It's very that interesting. Are... I didn't know that. Did you know that? I didn't. You haven't uh, noticed that? Very... No, I've, I've noticed a very pronounced conditioning effect that exercise-induced stress oh, has. May, on... Maybe you don't need to go to condition. You see, uh, you, we, we have something very curious about ourselves. We only have one body, right? We have one body. And we have our emotions playing in the theater of that one body, and literally occupying the theater rather dramatically. So if you have the stress that is in you, well, first of all, you could have a problem of having already consumed some of the fuel for your stress. So, you know, uh, you, you, you might not have more fuel for that in hormonal terms, for example. But more likely is the fact that you are literally occupying yourself with that kind of stress, which was induced physically, did not have a mental uh, cause, and, uh, and you just don't have room for the other stress that would have come in. Uh, this is interesting because we know that it's extremely difficult to have two emotions at the same time, if not impossible. So if you are angry, you are angry, and if you are happy, you are happy, and it takes a while to literally wash out the state of one emotion to give place to the other. Uh, there are circumstances in which you can have rapid flipping from one state to the other, rather mercurial states, and it's easy it's a, lot, a bit easier to happen if you have a, a manic syndrome. But by and large, that doesn't happen frequently. And that's because the, the, the phenomenon is not occurring purely on a mental space, but occurring rather in a very robust physical uh, uh, base that is occupied, is taken over by this process, which takes time, and it takes it's very slow to come in. I mean, slow in, in terms of neuron firings. You know, neurons fire very rapidly. What happens in emotions is a bit more complex in terms of time, and it takes time to wash out. Now, both processes stimulate the release of cortisol. However, cortisol release, which is associated with anxiety-induced stress, destroys your body, yeah. reduces your immune response, whereas yeah, that associated it, with exercise could be does exactly not. Exactly, because it's just not possible to have, there will be a competition of the causes. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Hi, um, I'm doing my uh, senior thesis on the D2 dopamine uh, gene and its deficient uh, isoform. And specifically in regard to reward, you, talked, you referred to Spinoza talking about um, negative emotions being an imperfect state. But I was wondering, um, and my thesis relates to the question as to whether in the reward system, in a deficient reward system with a feeling of uh, dissatisfaction, um, whether that creates a drive and ambition which actually um, lead to uh, you know, higher states of thinking or higher states of effort and achievement by an individual. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts on that connection might be. Okay. Well, uh, first thing, but what Spinoza said exactly was uh, we use the word transition. So when you go into a negative emotion, you go into a transition to 
a, a, a state of lesser perfection, uh, using his language. Um, what, what, what you're talking about is the possibility that in certain situations, having a negative emotion is actually not a bad thing. Obviously, if you have, um, for example, if you have fear, uh, if you're apprehensive about something that you're planning to do that happens to be uh, potentially very risky and bad for you or bad for someone else, fear is actually very protective. But the fact that it is protective in relation to your future planning or the fact that that fear or some unhappiness is going to give you more uh, ambition to work in a certain way does not deny the fact that in the moment when you have that emotion, your physiology is disturbed. So you're uh, mixing together two things. One is the statement that I made about the moment of emotion, uh, which connects with the, the Spinoza, which simply says that, for example, if you are in a state of anger or in a state of fear, you disorganize the flow of your physiology and you, for example, you introduce a higher cost of energy than you do if you are in a state of great happiness and uh, tranquility. So there, there, there's something about, you know, you could, uh, this will sound just poetic, but I suspect that the poetry is right. It's a more harmonic state versus a state of disruption. But it's in that point. Now, we all know that bad experiences in one's life can be horrible and mark us in a very bad way, but they can also be very good if they're not horrible, horrible, uh, and they can actually drive you to better things. And that's what you're saying. So the two things are perfectly compatible, which is good news for you. Except if that ambition is insatiable, so every time you attain something... Yeah. You, you think of something else to attain. Ah, well, you know, insatiable ambitions is the, 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 the stuff of addiction, and uh, that is a problem. I agree with you. Yeah. Especially at Princeton. Yeah. Could, uh, Antonio, a question left. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> so um, I wonder if I could get you to speculate a little bit on a point having to do with moral reasoning. In everyday experience, we all know people who have very different levels of innate capacity for moral reasoning. And it occurs to me that it might be possible at some point in the next decade or so to identify physical substrates for this. Do you think that it would be possible to identify what it is that makes some people more likely or more able to make uh, moral choices of various types? And secondly, do you think that would have a practical application? Uh, that's... That's important stuff. Um, so, uh, first, I think it will be possible to, uh, I mean, it is possible already, and it will be more possible to identify patterns of judgment, uh, of moral judgment, in a, variety of, uh, in a variety of individuals, and I'm not sure that you need neuroscience for that. I mean, you can do that with, with a variety of probes from traditional um, cognitive science. Uh, and some physiology, for example, skin conductance, uh, psychophysiological responses are very good predictors of both emotional uh, responses and uh, actually of uh, social uh, 
uh, misbehavior. So I, I think that we have ways of, of studying that without, without uh, uh, brain components. I'm not sure that the brain components are going to aid you that much. What, what, the, what the neuroscience does is to, in certain situations, is to separate um, one condition from the other. For example, uh, it is very nice to see that uh, when you are deciding in a situation of immediate reward, you engage structures that are very different from the structures that are engaged when you actually delay that reward. That's interesting, and it sort of reinforces certain notions, certain hypotheses that one could have coming from from psychology. Um, uh, so I, I think that what, what the, the neural stuff does is debug the, 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 the problems you may have in separating hypotheses that are built from a different approach. Where I think that the, the approach will be the, the neuro uh, aspect are very important is to uh, build a better and better description of how the brain works in relation to these systems and build, especially because we're working at the level of systems, build a connection to other levels. See, the, the, the level of, of uh, large-scale systems has the advantage that it can talk upward to a cognitive mental level and behavioral level, but it can also go down and talk to uh, or speak to issues that are related with uh, groups of cells, and eventually even to um, to cells in operation at a molecular level. So we have the possibility of joining vertically many of these levels. So, for example, for the kind of work that you're interested in, it will be important to go downward, but we need to know first this this level, which is really very privileged, of large-scale systems mental events, behaviors, and then everything that is underneath in terms of the circuitry. So getting at in some what the aspects are. Yeah, exactly. So we, we really getting a richer description. Now, of course, in relation to, uh, I, I certainly think that in relation to you know, speculating about what that would do in terms of uh, finding out who is morally, uh, um, morally impaired, that's a very serious uh, problem, and I definitely don't want to go into that. But I do think that the kind of knowledge that we're getting uh, can have impact into, uh, this, into the development of treatments for patients. For example, knowing that when you are... Think about it. I didn't emphasize that. I showed one slide there that had to do with induced sadness. Now, just... Imagine this because it's really quite amazing. Any of us, without being depressed, being perfectly fine, can be placed in the scanner, asked to reenact a scene of great sadness from your own life. It's an autobiographical event. And in two minutes, you are going to be in a state of sadness. You will work yourself into that, much like... Marlon Brando used to do when, when Lee Strasberg started to teach him. And what is interesting is that during that period, you have a very profound activation in a zone of the cingulate 
gyrus and a zone known as area 25, CG25, and that area becomes very hot very rapidly. Now, you're not depressed, you're sad momentarily, and then you're fine right after that. Now, lo and behold, this area is actually thinned out structurally in patients with chronic depression. And this area is clearly abnormal in patients with depression. And recently, a group uh, in Toronto has gone to this area and done electrical stimulation of this area in patients who have refractory depression and who do not respond to ECT, electroshock therapy, do not respond to uh, the common antidepressant drugs, and, lo and behold, the depression lifts upon electrical stimulation, which is totally innocuous, doesn't damage the brain, and yet is producing a positive result. Now, there are only six patients done in the first study. Uh, One doesn't know if this is going to hold, but this is just to give you an example that knowing about these things is not just necessarily uh, uh, satisfying one's curiosity, although I think for me that's the main my main drive is satisfy my curiosity, but I think this has a very clear value, not in every finding, but some values, some value in many of these findings. Richard Powers' book, The Echo Maker, and if so, to what extent do you think he got it right? Um, I've, that book was sent to me by a publisher. Uh, who wanted me to blurb it, and I started reading it. And uh, although uh, there are many intelligent things about it, the book irritated me so much that I stopped and didn't finish it. So I'm sorry. (laughs) Can't comment. (laughs) Okay. Could you elaborate upon the implications that your work has for the human belief in God, or perhaps the evolution of human belief in a supreme being. Um, and I suppose, as an aside, what's your opinion of um, this new, quote-unquote, enlightened new atheism um, that I guess people like Sam Harris are proposing? Okay. Um, I thought you were going to ask me about Richard Dawkins. Or, or Dan Dennett. Yeah. Okay. Um, well... Let, let, let me just, my, do you want to know what I think about that? Uh, probably not. Okay. Um, the, my, my view of it, my, my view in terms of what, one of the many things that emotion uh, probably did to humans is um, inspire a compensatory reaction that ended up in the development of religions, which I think is a brilliant creation for people who were uh, taking consciousness of suffering, uh, of loss, uh, of their own mortality, of the mortality of those they loved. And um, it was a perfectly intelligent thing to imagine a system that would allow them to uh, feel more comfortable with that reality. This is one view that one can have. Why is the emotion work important for this? Is that emotion is about such things as uh, suffering and, uh, and sadness and hope and joy and ways of finding some kind of equilibrium. 
You should ask Jonathan Haidt about this because he knows all about happiness. And I think that religion is one great, there are many, many forms of an attempt to reach that happiness. Now, I'm perfectly comfortable if people have another view of how it evolved, uh, but I think that this is a reasonable view of how it evolved, given the things that we know about how the brain operates, especially in relation to mechanisms of homeostatic regulation, such as uh, emotions are. Now, that said, it is quite conceivable that at some point in evolution, because of the enormous importance of adopting such a set of attitudes and being uh, quite compatible with the notion of some kind of creation and salvation, uh, it's quite possible that, in fact, some of our brain structures are already highly tuned to seeking that kind of solution. This is, makes perfect sense evolutionarily to me. It's no great problem. still doesn't make it the thing that is really happening and doesn't guarantee you uh, afterlife in heaven, but it's quite conceivable that there is a biological basis for the enormous seeking if not of God and salvation through God, of some kind of meaning that goes beyond the day-to-day -day trivialities. I have a, a quick question. Uh, I'm not a scientist. I, I work with uh, a lot of business decision makers, and <clears throat> I'm very interested in the effect of uh, the wonderful digital world uh, and the speed of processing that it gets people into. And my understanding of part of your work is the, the view that the difference between the processing, rational processing part of the brain and the judgment and emotional part of the brain, the unmyelinated fibers that do that work, are compromised by the processing and the fast speed with which digital communications and digital processing uh, compromises the brain. I see that in the business world every day. I was curious whether you so, saw that as a social issue, especially for a young generation that's grown up in the digital world, and if so, how you saw that playing out. So you, you, you think that there is evidence for some kind of compromise in people who are multitasking and uh, are highly conversant presumably younger people that are highly conversant with the digital world, is that it? What kind of evidence would that be? Well, I, I see it every day in business where both how, young... How, how does it manifest itself? <clears throat> it manifests itself in the very, very quick retrieval of information, response to information, access to multiple stimuli... Uh, okay. Multitasking. Okay, so so uh, what you're describing is not a compromise. You're describing an improvement. No, I understand in the processing part of that, in the in the rational processing, but the emotional. What seems to happen is it crowds out. I the see emotional I see. response. So so I'm I'm sorry. I, I was not clear about it. So what you're describing is that. Uh, the, uh, uh, along with the fact that they're faster and they can use more tracks in their processing, you think that there's some, some kind of emotional shutdown. Yes, it crowds out that emotional and judgment okay. reaction. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting to think that it is a crowding. Um, that's a sort of very 
mechanical, hydraulic kind of model, and, and may, maybe it works. Um, but there are other explanations for that. I, I think uh, you, uh, I, I had not understood your question, but I think that other people have commented on that, so you, you're probably uh, in, in the right path. But I, what I think is happening is the following, which is quite interesting. Think about this possibility. A lot of what has improved in terms of our speed of processing has to do with our enormous um, cognitive capacity, which clearly is related in part to structures that are more modern in terms of the brain, more modern in terms of evolution. And these structures uh, process at very, very fast speed, and they can handle multiple stimuli and handle calculations and multiple uh, sensory channels uh, faster, and they learn and they can adapt to faster speeds, uh, at least during maybe certain critical periods. I think that people of my generation have much more difficulty doing that than people of younger generations, and that's obvious to us you know, when you watch young people. At the same time, the structures that process emotion and are handling all of this regulation of our body in general, and they're one and the same, are very old structures in evolution. And they're structures that are highly conserved and highly maintained. For example, if you look at the, uh, at, at the limbic structures, the emotion-related structures of a human or a chimpanzee, I can give you slices of the brain, and you will, I know I can tell you this is human, but it's not. It's a chimpanzee, and you will say it's human, because they look very similar in terms of those structures. The big differences occur, first of all, at the level of circuitry, but mostly at the level of the neocortex, the ones that are more related to fast cognition. So I think that one problem, and I, th I think it's a bit of a nightmare scenario, is if in a culture that is geared towards faster and faster electronic communication, we will be uh, going too fast for the possibility of proper emotions being deployed. And think of this, what if, for example, something that comes through as an image, for example, something that depicts a horror, comes through, but it comes very fast, and there is no time for the brain to react with the appropriate emotion to that particular fact. Uh, we could have a developing problem, which is a problem of literally a disconnect between two streams of processing, one that is getting faster and faster, and another that is taking its own time, because that's not going to be terribly open to uh, rapid evolution. So I think that's, that could be, first of all, an explanation for what you're seeing. Uh, it doesn't need to be that anything is happening to the brain cells themselves. It may just be the product of different demands being, being placed upon the same kind of brain. So something to, to think about. By the way, there, there's some evidence uh, appearing that even when we are capable of very fast uh, multitask processing, it doesn't follow that there are not costs to the learning that can be done along those multiple tracks. Something has got to suffer, and the results are not in yet as to what is going to suffer. I would be very surprised 
if there won't be a cost to pay for multitasking and for you know talking on a to, talking on a, a cell phone, listening to an iPod, operating your computer, and driving a bike at the same time. <laughs> that's maybe going a little bit too far. Uh, okay, uh, please take your choice of these two questions. Um, what do you think is the next big idea in emotion research, or uh, what will your next book be on? <laughs> it can be the same answer. Okay. Um, the, um, the next book is taking shape, and it's about, uh, I think it's still about emotion, but, but it's... Uh, Maybe it's called Once More with Feeling. No, it's not. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's really about uh, uh, social decisions. Social decisions, yeah. And the next, there are a lot of next big ideas. I don't think that I could give you just, just one. And I'm sure you're working on some of them yourself. <laughs> <laughs>